amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club, and this is your show. Well, it was a season that looked like it was struggling to get going, even as late as mid-February. Four months on, and Manchester City have won the big three. The Premier League was the first, the FA Cup was the second, but then last Saturday they brought home the big one from Istanbul, City's first ever Champions League title. It's the middle of June, and somehow the season has only just ended, but it's all worth it because Manchester City are treble winners. Time to review it all. We're at Idle Hands Coffee in Manchester, and this is the Blue Moon Podcast Live. I'm David Mooney. With me for an evening of treble chat is City. City fan Richard Burns. The Daily Mail's Northern football reporter Jack Gorn. And the former City captain and defender Keith Curl. I know it's not a competition, but one person did get a better cheer than the other. So you two, up your game. All right. Uh, Richard, I'll start with you because, uh, I mean, City, what City have achieved this season? Can you put into words what it means to you as a fan? I mean, out of the gate with a tough one. I mean, like, no. <laughs> Which isn't great well, for tonight, Well, thanks for that, yeah. Thanks very much. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> But I'll give it a go, seeing as we're here. It's, it's the culmination of a lifetime of supporting City, isn't it? Like, it, if football wasn't... Like, if the fixtures weren't announced tomorrow, it would sort of feel like a natural endpoint to everything. Like, for me, my first season with a season ticket was the Division 2 year, so 98-99. Obviously, ended with the Wembley playoff. And you sort of, like, as a 10-year-old, watching that the end to that game. It sort of feels like nothing could ever be better than that. My uh, parents may remember I was given like special dispensation to sing at that, uh, at the end of that game that you can stick your fucking treble up your ass. <laughs> and we, we've, we, we've got Richard's parents in the room tonight. <laughs> Is that true? It's, it, it's true. absolutely true. And he, he did us proud and uh, well done Richard. <laughs> there we go. Um, and so to be like here 24 years later, City having won the treble and just that that journey and the things that we've seen the like the so close but yet so far like relegation I remember crying a couple of years later when we got relegated at Ipswich another thing my parents will remember me going to the top of the stairs and having a, a proper sob to myself and now like it's just beyond beyond your wildest dreams, isn't it? Whoever would have thought. Because the other thing, like, I, I have a very specific memory with City, uh, well, not even of City. When United won the Champions League in 2009, I had a very, um, like, quite personal moment of, like, I'm never, I'm never going to see this. It's never going to happen for City. 
and watching like people that you know and like that you're friends with celebrate that and know what it feels like. Like I can't pretend I wasn't a bit jealous. And now Who's jealous now? Exactly. Like what 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 have they done other than like win it more because of chronology? Like what have they done that City haven't done and bettered? It's just amazing. I, I'm going to interrupt you, Rich, because your dad wants to come back in. As Rich's dad will answer that, we basically stuck the treble up their ass. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't how I was expecting this evening to go so early, you know. But here we are. Um, Jack, like, you've been there all season. You've followed them all season, covering them. Yep. As a story, how, how has this been to report on? Uh, absolutely incredible. The same as you guys a once-in-a-lifetime sort of opportunity, but for obviously different reasons. Um, I think I was, I was totting it up the other day. I think I've done 47, 48 of the games this season. I don't even know how they played in total. 61. I'm a bad fan, so. 61. So it's like, you, you, it's strange really, because you like feel part of it, even though I'm not, obviously. But because you're there and you're living it, you become sort of, I don't know, you're ingrained in the story, really. And the last, the last month has been absolutely incredible. Like, they just Monday, Monday was a really, really special day um, for a few reasons. Just, but, but two of them would be that I've, I've managed to report on a treble, which not many people get to do. I've done it with my mates, which has been great. And then I've lived in Manchester for seven years since moving up from London, and to see the streets around the city on Monday was like really, really special from a personal perspective. And with what Richard was saying before about it feeling like a fitting end, I, it feels like the start to me. I, I, I don't know how far they can go. It wouldn't surprise me if they, if they went to go and win Community Shield, Super League, Club World Cup, League Cup, and suddenly have seven trophies, all seven. <laughs> that honestly genuinely wouldn't surprise me. That's quite an impressive and scary thought at the same time. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to next year's show already for, uh, for that one. Uh, Keith, as a, as a former player and kind of someone who's got insight into the work that goes into this, the, the, the sort of things that, that have for a club to be successful, how much work has gone in for City to achieve this? I think, well, probably the, the first off is... Um, my recollection of what the football club was when I, uh, that I joined, you know, uh, at Main Road uh, in '92, I think it was um, a total transformation that has been built, and like, the end of it now is built on the the ethos of Pep Guardiola. He will have the respect and the de the demands that he puts on his players. It's um, it, it's respect. It's built out of respect, and again, some of the. the some some of the, uh, the the neutrals of the of the game now they're saying City are boring. Watching City is boring. It's, obviously, they're not City fans. But then, as a as somebody that has got an insight into the game, the work that goes into the um, the mythology of their play is phenomenal because they make it look so simple. The the timing, the movement, the, the rotations, obviously the goals that they score as well. Uh, it's excellent to watch. <coughs> Yeah. So, so in goal, terms of so, so the goal on Saturday night, they kept the ball for three years before Rodri put it in. <laughs> like, and that the pass from Akanji. It's like what other the, the the pass from Akanji. The the thing that makes that so special is about what two and a half minutes, three minutes before that, 
he'd just fucked up with Edison at the back and yeah, given yeah, them a chance. Yeah, yeah. It's like to regain your composure and go, yeah. actually, I'm going to drive yeah. here now. A lot of defenders and a lot of players could quite easily go, I'm not going to take that responsibility. Mm. Can you remember just before, just before half-time when uh, Kanji's broke forward and he's had a shot from 35 yards? Mm. Uh, I was doing Sky on Saturday and I said, that is not the way Pep attacks. Uh, ending up with uh, a Kanji shooting from 35 yards and, and then the similar uh, similar position at the other end of the pitch then he's found that little slide pass uh, and then the cross and then the, the finish phenomenal yeah this is an unfair question but what am I, I I'm obviously here to pose those Richard um, what's City's biggest achievement this season because in the Champions League they've never won it before they've beaten Bayern Munich and Real Madrid en route and then they've, they've had to do that the hard way the Premier League, Arsenal raced off to an incredible start. City weren't playing particularly well. City went and had to, they beat them three times over the course of the season, including the FA Cup. And then the FA Cup, they've knocked out Arsenal, they've knocked out Chelsea, they've knocked out United. So, like the, the really broad answer that I would give is that the achievement is in having the mentality to overcome the relative adversity of the position that they were in in the league where we started talking about a treble and we can look back now as the league being the easiest of those. Like the final against Inter was hard. The final against United was um, harder than people expected it to be. You know, like people outside of City who didn't have City fan nerves of what a derby final would be like were talking about potential sort of 4-0, 5-0 embarrassing finals. I knew United fans who were, who were sort of talking it down like that, like if we can keep the score down, that's sort of an all right day for us. And Times have changed, eh, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the league, like the... I, I don't know what your plan is for how we might get into some of the conversation around City tonight, and I'm not necessarily going to poke that too much now. But... For the way it's been spoken about as how inevitable it was that City would win the league, how City can't be competed with because of the resources they've got. Well, in spite of all that, Arsenal at the halfway point had more points than any Premier League team have ever had at the halfway point. And City didn't put... Was it, when was the Liverpool game? Was it February? March? When they put... That's a great question. I don't know the answer to Mar March. The, the first time that they put more than three <coughs> back-to-back -back wins together in the league all season. So that's a... City's job for a large part of the season was cling on to Arsenal's coattails and that isn't the same mentality needed as leading the league by 5, 10, 15 points as we've sometimes found ourselves doing or even having that neck and neck with Liverpool that we've become accustomed to where nobody's going to bottle it whether that's the term we want to use for Arsenal or whether that's fair or whatever Liverpool's mentality was never in question and neither was City's. So, of course, the team might lose because it's football and if we knew the results before we turned up, then nobody would ever watch. So, you never knew Liverpool were going to win, but you knew they weren't going to bottle it if City had played before or, or whatever might have happened. So, for City, the different circumstances uh, in, the, in the league than maybe they found themselves in in the last couple of years, the different opponent of not knowing how Arsenal would react, obviously, the... Um, the situation they found themselves in mid-season with the Premier League charges could have derailed everything. It, you know, they could have been forgiven. Might, might have done the opposite, let's well, be honest. Yeah, but they could, they could have been forgiven if that had seeped through to the playing squad and, um, and, and crushed the morale a little bit. And exactly the opposite happened. And once again, when they had to, City became perfect. Like, when City are backed into a corner where they have to win every game, they go and win every game. 
And the only time they slipped up and didn't do that at the end of the season was a complete dead rubber with a second string team against a team who, were the, you know, I mean, Brentford were there for funsies. Last home game of the season in a successful Premier League season outside shot at Europe, like, who cares that we lost that game? What does it matter? Yeah, it would have been nice to get over 90 points, but who's ever going to talk about that ever again? Yeah. So that's the, the achievement is the mentality to me. I think the, the way people talk about City and there being no jeopardy completely baffles me. It, ba- it baffles I- me because there's a room full of people here who, ahead of every game, convince themselves that City are going to yeah, lose. Yeah. They still, the bank they, of evidence. They still think they're going to fuck up the treble. Yeah. <laughs> but he's, I had a conversation with a colleague on Saturday. We were having like, lunch before the game. And he was like, well, it was this kind of like inevitable chat. And I just, I just looked at him. Obviously, there's jeopardy. It's a, like, I'm not going to get into the money side of it, but removing that, it's 11 against 11. Anything can happen. City have messed up so many games in the last seven years under Pep. If you look at the European record, that obviously there's jeopardy. There was jeopardy in the in the league title. There was jeopardy against United. Like United should have really equalised late on the other week, and then Inter were significantly better than people thought they were going to be. And, and they still should have equalised. Yeah, re- yeah, really should have equalised. So you know they they just. Rich is completely right with the mentality thing. They just find a way of grinding things out, which is incredible. How, how is that, Keith? How, how is it knowing when you go onto a football pitch, knowing you can trust your teammates to just get the job done sometimes? I think trust is uh, an overused word in football and probably very much misunderstood. I think it's probably, there's two words, tr- trust and honesty. Um, but, um, you gain them, or players gain that with performances out on the pitch, uh, and also how they conduct themselves on a, uh, on a daily basis. You can, I think, you can tell Pep trusts his players, uh, and there's there's an honesty amongst them. I think it was two two interesting things that, uh, that I noticed from the um, from the Champions League uh, game on Saturday. After the after the game, you had all the celebrations and everything like that. And I mentioned it again. I mentioned it on Sky that um, Pep straight away was talking to his coaches about tactics you can see the celebrations going on in the background and he's there remonstrating with one, one of his coaches about the movements of the players should have been done I'm like you've just he's, won he's a nerd isn't he absolute yeah. nerd but, but then, but then uh, a touching moment for me as a, uh, as a spectator watching the game then was when the, the players lifted the cup Pep was there obviously he's in the middle of it and then he stood, he stood to one side and he's applauded the players uh, and himself and I think that for me was uh, that shows his appreciation because there's been a lot of hard work and, uh, and he's earned the respect the players have earned his respect but he also respects the players because they've gone out uh, consistently putting in performances um, that have been merited Just on the charges with what Richard was saying before I don't think it, people have said that it's galvanised the squad I don't think it did to galvanise the squad. I don't, give, I, don't give, I don't think the players give a hoot about that sort of stuff at all. I think what it did do was galvanise the coaching staff. And therefore, because they, they were there and then up there after the charges, because they're so sort of indoctrinated in the club, that it then transmits to the players. And that's why they were able to go and do what they've done. Was that, that sort of... Because the Happy Flowers thing was probably about four weeks before that. Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks before. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking like that combined with the charges, then is like okay, everybody, just get your asses in gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's, there comes a point in any season where, the, well, I mean, K 
Keith will know far better than me, but where the, there'll be something that happens that changes it, changes the season, and it goes one way or the other. And the Happy Flowers thing was obviously a big aspect of that this year. I think the charges were sort of by proxy. And then if you look back at the season before, there was the um, the training sessions where Fernandinho's just come in and absolutely killed them all for, for basically not trying. And you have to have those sort of characters, which the club have had for, well, 10 years, haven't they? There's all, they've always had that sort of person leading them, whether it be Pep or one of his captains. And you've seen one this year. Like, Gundogan's a bit quieter than previous captains but I think when he speaks people listen and there is that sort of respect yeah exactly that um, Keith the other side of City's success this season is they've had the smallest squad in the Premier League they've used 24 players all season and that includes uh, Shea Charles who came on for the final half hour at, uh, at Brentford and it includes Maximo Peroni who played 18 minutes at Bournemouth so and, and two goalkeepers so realistically that's 20 outfield senior players they've used this season what does that say about the squad and the work they've done? I think it's um, players want to be playing. There's competition within the ranks that players, um, rotation-wise, the, the team that hasn't been rotated that, that, that much. But I think player, Pep will understand the demands that, uh, that he puts on the players and it's the, the importance of getting them out on the pitch. I think he looks after players, uh, people like Carl Walker. I know Carl has a couple of days off during the week, you know, 33 years old. I think, uh, did he play the most get, uh, games as the outfield player? I think, I think Rodri yeah. might have, yeah. yeah, Rodri might be yeah. top, but Walker's certainly up there, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, definitely. So again, I think, again, it goes back to that trust. You know, players, um, Pep will trust the players not to train uh, 100% day in, day out through the week, but be able to put in a performance. And then, the, then that's the accountability of the players. If you've got a manager that's looking after you, you know you've got to, you've got to perform on a Saturday. Yeah, I mean, Richard, the other side of it is you hear as a fan, well, City have got two players in every position and literally the maths says they don't. Yeah, I mean, it's um, stuff like that. It's just very empty talk, isn't it? It's like we, we know that it's not true. What, what City have in terms of depth is extraordinary quality and they do have players who can play multiple positions, obviously. I mean, we've seen through the season, John Stones has turned into like the best midfielder of all time. Um <laughs> So, yeah, there is, there is, you can't say there isn't depth or like completely kibosh that point. It's depth of quality though, isn't yeah. it? It's not depth of numbers. It, yeah, and to one of our, um, one of our friends, I, f I forget who, but mentioned the other day, like, n it might have even been you, David, so if it was, I'm if sorry. If it was, you, you, better, this, you better get this point right. <laughs> um, but not just having used the least players, but that also coming in a World Cup year where obviously City have been heavily represented at the World Cup, players going very deep into the World Cup and to still get those levels out of them and the fitness out of them and again I suppose it sort of goes back to mentality like there's the um, from the All or Nothing documentary in, in 2018 there's the, like, the great video of Pep screaming at the players in training you're tired, fuck you, you're tired and he just like won't let them be tired and it's like that, that mentality of just keeping yourself going when all is on the line, I guess is a big part of how they can use such a small squad. And it's also part of Pep's ideology, isn't it? But the, the easy thing to say is City have loads of money, so they've got two players for every position. We've seen what happens when we rotate even five players. We nearly blew a three, well, 
pushing it to say we nearly blew the lead. We struggled against Leicester from a, a position of being three goals up when you made five substitutions. It's not a depth of quality where you can just turn it on when you rotate players. So, yeah, it's a, it's a nonsense point that only highlights even more how impressive City's team is. Would you, as a manager, would you prefer to have a squad of 18, 19 outfield players? Or is it... Or is that too small for a normal club, a normal team? No, no uh, lower league management, you probably you get a squad of 21, 20, uh, 22 outfield players, which means then on Fridays when you're leaving 10 or 11 of them out, you're going to get knock, knocks, on your, <laughs> knocks on your door. But within that squad of 22, you'd probably say you've got a squad of 15 starters yeah. that you're happy to you know, rotate uh, three or four players um, every, every couple of weeks. But again, the... I think the big thing is the lower league management. You, you want strikers. Yeah, ideally, that's probably one of the things you, you want. Goal score. You want opportunities to go and score goals on Saturday. So, yeah, the one position that you'd probably say that you want to have um, a pool of is four or five centre forwards that can change uh, an attack in an instant. But say centre forwards, wise, how many have they got on the books? Well, it depends what your class as a centre forward <laughs> these days, I suppose, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Jack. Just on the, the the management of the squad. I mean, as Richard says, you know, you are tired. Fuck you. Like, I he didn't say that to me. No, yeah, I know he didn't <laughs> say that to you. But like, I'm exhausted watching this team. So like, I can't imagine what it's like playing in this team. I can't imagine what it's like balancing the like all of the different aspects of the team. And when you get to this point in the season, I mean, you can't say City have been lucky to get the the, point, the the trophies they have done and have the, the season that they have done. But there comes a point where you go, things are falling in the right way here. Yeah. You look at the FA Cup semi-final. In previous years, they've drawn Liverpool, they've drawn Chelsea, they've drawn Arsenal. And this year, Sheffield United. And you go, like, you get to the point where you're thinking, actually, it, it might be on it. I at, made, what, at what point was it on? I made this point to you on a podcast the other week and you yeah. turned around and went, well, yeah, but look at the Champions League run. It's been really difficult. <laughs> you can't then turn it around. No, I, yeah, I know. It's my job to my, interrogate you, isn't it? I think, uh, I think they've done really well with injuries this year. I don't know whether that, that either luck or judgment, that sort of not, not fallen into place for them in previous years as much as it has done this year. They were worried about Haaland going into the season and have managed to manage his fitness really well. Like Keith was saying about Walker, like Haaland doesn't train at full tilt all the time. They really look after him. Um, and yeah, the, you are right. It's the, Thanks. <laughs> you're welcome. The, the FA Cup semi-final was massive, really, because they found that particular game so difficult in previous years because they've been going for like two, three different things. And once, Richard said it before, once you take four or five players out of that team, it's not the same team. And that's not because, that's not because the secondary players are bad players. It's because they never play together. Yeah, so really if you drop momentum, them all yeah, in yeah. together at Wembley in front of 90,000 people, and it's been against Chelsea, Liverpool in previous seasons, that's going to be the game that you fall down. And this is why they've, they've never done what they've done this year before. Yeah. So you should thank Sheffield United, really. <laughs> that James McAtee, yeah. given he didn't play. Yeah. Um, Richard, comparisons to United's treble in 99 are, are difficult because different eras, and obviously City's is better. Um, but for the journey for City since 99, because like you referenced it before, but like that being your first season ticket year, 
if, I mean, if someone had said to you in '99, like you're going to see your team achieve what United have achieved this season, like what would you have said? I mean, you would. It was so far from possible. Like at that point, City being promoted out of the third tier, and there was a point where that was far from possible. Yeah, as well. ex- exactly, and. As I recall it, and like forgive me the mem- like the memories of a ten sort of eleven year old. I don't remember City being particularly well fancied for, to to do a back to back promotion. I don't think anybody looked at the squad and thought that's a squad equipped to sort of take the next step and go straight to the Premier League. I think it's maybe it's a bit tweet to say, but like generally accepted that a big part of what City carried what carried City through the next season was the way that they'd got out of Division 2 and like the way that brought the squad together the way that I guess it changed the, the mood around the whole club like City were just so far so far away from like even really thinking about being in the Premier League to think about winning it or like winning any kind of trophy that wasn't a pot for the playoff final or for maybe getting another promotion it was just like just being in the Premier League was a dream I remember being genuinely excited that we'd be on match of the day oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like the idea that John Motson might commentate on a City League game was like wow and then the first Be- time it happened was a 4-0 defeat yeah, <laughs> people, people look at me really weird when, like, when people say what, what, go- what City goal means the most to you as a fan and they go is it, is it Aguero's against mm-hmm. QPR is it Gundogan's against Villa is it I mean even now Rodri's in the Champions League final and when I say it's Mark Kennedy's against Blackburn at Ewood Park in yeah. 2000 it's like, like people are like, like what are you talking about but that's the moment I knew they were up, and that still, like, it was on Sky the other day, and I still cried. Yeah, it's, I mean, and that is the journey, isn't it? Like, that's what the beauty of it all is in. It's in the, the supporter experience, and, um, like, there'll be, there'll be really different experiences now, because we've got a, a whole generation of fan bases who, sorry, a whole generation of fans who will barely remember City ever even being outside of the Champions League, never mind outside of the Premier League. And so I guess, like, that journey then becomes like the desperate struggle to not get knocked out of the Champions League in the most ridiculous circumstances <laughs> year after year after year. And like those heartbreaking moments are Spurs in the Champions League or it's the, the heartbreak of the stupid Madrid defeat last year. And, and so like, I guess there's always a way for any generation of City fans to look at themselves as almost hard done by and, and having had to put in the hard yards to get to this point where you've seen City win the Champions League and really um, this isn't my view but the view of the wider footballing public to legitimise themselves as a top team as a prestigious team like that that journey's insane isn't it like is there is there a group of fans who have seen that that kind of journey at the high level that City have done it. Like, and obviously there's, you know, the loot and story down to the lower leagues, back to the top division, all the teams have done that. Like, there's, every fan base has their journey. But has anybody done it from the top division to absolute laughing stock while the neighbours dominate everything and you go and outdo them? And, like, every step of the way that you outdo them, you literally outdo them and beat them in the process. It's just a stupid journey, isn't it? It's like you wouldn't... I was going to say you wouldn't write it, but I suppose it's exactly what you were right if you were writing a fairy tale. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's laughing stock and back, isn't it? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. uh, it's, it's funny because you said fairy tale, and people always say it's no fairy tale. Actually, it probably is a fairy tale. You know, rich, poor, rich uh, benefactor turns pauper into prince. That's exactly a fairy tale. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, let's talk about some individual players then, because... 
because um, there have been some key players for City this season. The one we have to start with, Keith, is Erling Haaland uh, because he's broken pretty much every record going. Um, what have you made of him? What, like, like people talked about him. It's like he might adapt. He might struggle to adapt to the Premier League. And then he's come in, and there's literally only Dixie Dean who's ever scored more in a season than him. I think his uh, his, uh, his introduction is, is seamless, um, and I think that's not only down to his ability, but I think if you have a look at his character um, or his personality that you see on the pitch, very endearing to other players. He's I wouldn't say that. Uh, He's the most skillfulest of the individual players, but he's great in and around the box. Uh, I think his link-up play's got better the more games that he's played. And he's, he's an individual that, uh, as a former defender, you think like you couldn't defend against him. I was going to ask you how uh, you would do it. <laughs> again, I, I don't think you could do it on your own. Uh, you'd have to do it as a unit, uh, as a three or, uh, or a four. And, but he's got movement, pace, power. Uh, he's got aggression. Uh, but it's finishing in and around the box. Some of the, I saw a, a highlight reel of some of his finishes. Unbelievable. Some of his, uh, the dexterity he's got, some of the, some of the body positions that he gets himself in to get a foot on things. That's instinctive, uh, instinctive goal-scoring ability. Yeah. That, goal, that goal against Dortmund. The one where his foot's higher than his yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. 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 Incredible. Well, the, my eyes popped out of my head watching that. <laughs> it's it funny saying about sort of how you would handle him. I think Ben Mee said recently that he, he was pinching him all game, yeah. which is probably you need those like dirty tricks, don't you, to get them the, the dark side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that, we do, that we don't see. Yeah, the, the, unfortunately, with uh, how many cameras do they have at Sky Games now? Yeah, a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they still they still missed it. Yeah, no one knew. Yeah, no, no. It's um, no. Again, he's. Um, He's a, I wouldn't say he's a, he's a clever player. He's an instinctive player that has got uh, an understanding with the players on the pitch. That you know, he doesn't, he makes a move and they find him, uh, and he doesn't wait for the say. Oh, has he seen me? He goes, and they got uh, like De Bruyne, the, the link up and the combinations between the, uh, himself and De Bruyne. Uh, it's like telepathic. Uh, like he's one of those, the ball can be going to be running. He's making his run. And sometimes it's a double run. It's a one run for the, the, the defender. He knows where he wants to go, yeah. uh, and then the ball gets delivered. Is that the the goal against West Ham, first weekend of the season, where he, De Bruyne slipped him in, Harlan's turned himself around and put it in the bottom corner, and the West Ham defenders are going, "What's just happened?" Yeah. That that was the moment where you go. This kid's going to do well. Yeah. As if you needed, as if you needed proof to, to know <laughs> that it was going to go well. But yeah. after the after the Liverpool Community Shield, yeah. it's like, like people writing him off, like genuinely writing him off. It's like what you'd like. I had a, I had a phone call from my editor going, Harlan, not not great on Saturday, was he? I was like, well, he could have scored four, so positionally he was fine. Like, it's not going to be a problem. He's like he's going to score loads of goals. Yeah, but like, oh, Nunes scored, didn't he? I was like, yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to say? Richard, there's an element of as soon as Haaland gets the ball. I mean, I mean, there's two parts to this, because first off, as soon as Haaland gets the ball, it's very easy to just get quite giddy because you, quite, you know what's going to happen. But at the same time, you look at the last few weeks, like, he's genuinely in the worst run of his career. Of his senior career, like he's never done as badly as he has done in the last seven games. It's one goal in seven games. And it's like one in seven is his worst moments. And you're still like, he'll be fine. Like, he'll score at some point and then the floodgates will open again. Well, yeah, he's, um, I suppose to your first part, I mean, I absolutely, like I'm sure everyone does, relate to that 
idea of being giddy every time he gets the ball because you do you, there is a, a, an assumption that he's going to score he's, I mean I heard a, um, a debate after the game where he scored the, the record breaking goal and there was a debate on the radio after about like, was he a natural finisher it's like if that's not a natural finisher what is <laughs> and I think the point being that like not every shot hits like the bottom corner or they're not perfectly placed or like delicate goals it's like well isn't that sort of the point? Like every, almost every shot that he selects seems to beat the keeper. And he almost always does it with his first touch. Like, isn't that how you'd sort of define a natural finisher that he doesn't ever seem to have to think about it? So yeah, like it is giddiness. I well remember the turning up to the Bournemouth game, the first home game of the season. Um, I hadn't been able to watch the West Ham game the week before because I'd uh, very badly misjudged a journey home from Surrey and was stuck in on the motorway and got home with like 30 seconds of stoppage time left um, so like properly excited to like see him live for the first time and I hadn't yet actually seen him score and obviously he oh, wasn't he the ball seven times yeah he, he yeah. wasn't great in that game but like even just that knowing what he'd been like at, at Dortmund and like prior to that what his record was it's the most excited I've been to turn up and watch a new signing for a long, long time. Like, but it's, it's a weird thing, though, that it's City, in the last few years, City haven't normally gone out and got a superstar. Mm-hmm. They've got players who've got potential and turned them into superstars. Haaland, is the fir- like, for the first time, is the one where you've gone, he's the one you want. You've, got, like, you've just got to get him. Yeah, it, it felt like a properly like, box office signing, didn't it? I suppose, like... How often does City win transfer battles with other clubs? Like, quite often, they, they cede to other clubs, don't they? Because it's, again, it sort of goes against the popular idea, but City won't just go and pay an amount of money that they don't value a player at. So they've lost out on plenty of signings. What City are very good at is, um, is then having the backups. Different conversation. But, like, Haaland is the player that they had to beat other clubs to. Clearly, he was very happy to come to City, very intent on coming to City because City fit the bill for what he needed at that point in his career as well. There was a very obvious gap for him to fit into. Um, but yeah, that, like it was a, a proper, uh, I've sort of forgot a little bit what your question was here. So, <laughs> but it, I'm, as long as people don't mind me just saying how good Erling Haaland is. Like, yeah, it was like just so exciting to turn up and watch him. And yeah, giddy. And I, I will be giddy again every time he gets the ball next season because he's, he's going to score a load of goals again. They're just on a that the club as a whole is now on a different sort of a different planet with Haaland he's that big that they're just it's a different stratosphere for the club as a whole um, and it's kind of it's sort of similar with Grealish because of the way Grealish is as a character and you know it's it, the, elaborate Jack people <laughs> people are very interested in Jack Grealish I think yeah. you would but like with those sort of characters because Haaland is as well I don't know I mean it's a bit boring to say but like sort of commercially and for the size of the club those sort of signings really really help Um, and speaking to Richard's point earlier about them not not overspending uh, on specific players I remember when I mean we talked about this before but I remember when Maguire went to United Pep was absolutely raging about that like really upset and he was like why didn't the club just pay the extra 10 million? I think City had bid 70 and he went for 80, I think, to United. Like that, yeah. He's like, why, why didn't we go and, and just do it? That's the player I wanted. And they went, we don't value him at that. So they, they went, I think, I think they might have gone without. And you, they did. They went, that was the, oh, was that the Diaz year? No, the Diaz year was the year after. Was it? 
So they must have gone without for the whole season. But obviously, they've been, it's been proven. They've been proven right. You mentioned Grealish, Jack. Um, Not very well, sorry, but I did mention But yeah, I mean, I was just using it as a segue and now you've ruined my segue, so it's, <laughs> it's fine. Um, when you've got a talent like that in your squad, Keith, what, what's it like, like playing behind them? Because Grealish is someone who's really come into his own this season. Yeah, definitely. I think probably, I think everybody was aware of his natural ability and probably if you have a look at his playing days at Villa, he had a freedom uh, to go and win games, go and enjoy himself and go and play his natural game. I think the thing that's impressed me is his discipline, that might not be apt at the moment, but his, his discipline that he <laughs> shows... Discipline on the pitch. Yeah, his, his discipline on the pitch has been phenomenal. Holding his position, holding his shape for the team, understanding his role within the team dynamics and having his ego managed by a manager that understands the youthful exuberance of a young professional but allying that with saying you've got a job to do for the team do your job for the team and this is the areas of the pitch where you can go and express yourself and you go and play but you've got to do your job for the team and I think Jack has taken that on board and I think he's grown as a player grown as an individual even though he is still able to enjoy himself have you have you managed to speak to him this season Jack does he do any mix zone stuff? No, uh, I wanted to speak to him, but Ian Ladyman interviewed him for us, which <laughs> was it was amazing, amazing interview, which quite a lot of it was about his character and his drinking, actually. So <laughs> they should republish it because it'd probably be good this week. Um, yeah, we spoke to it. No, we haven't spoken to him this season. We spoke to him uh, in Houston or Wisconsin last year on pre-season. And he's, like, he's just a really engaging guy. Um, but unfortunately, we don't get to speak to many of the superstars that often these days so it's a shame because yeah. yeah he gives a good interview yeah I've, uh, this is the thing he's, he's worth days. he's worth waiting for if you can get 10 minutes with jack Grealish, you wait months for it it's the same with harland we did harland for the first time since pre-season last week which was i don't know 10 minutes i ended up getting 1500 words out of it because it's erling harland it's, look he could he could say the sky's blue and everyone wants to read about it but that's what that's what i'm saying about these these players who just elevated them because you know five five years ago would you be would i be able to do an interview with a man city player for five minutes and be able to get two pages out of it probably not but now it's completely different richard uh when you've seen Grealish over the the course of the last well i'm gonna say two weeks uh because he has he has enjoyed himself and he's enjoyed (laughs) being at city um in a weird way it just kind of makes you love him more doesn't it yeah, completely. I mean, this is like the... It's the really like boring, cliched thing to say about Grealish at this point, but in a game, in a sport where everybody is media-trained within an inch of their life, where after a game you know what somebody's going to say if they've scored the winning goal, it's the, oh, well, you know, the team's the most important thing and all that. Grealish will come to an interview after and say, well, I was crap, but I scored, or... Yeah, well, actually, I'm really disappointed with how many goals I've scored. So it's nice to get one today. And like stuff like that is, it is an insight into his character that you don't necessarily get from other players. And then, yeah, I mean, obviously his partying and the way that he's celebrated is like obviously quite an extreme insight into um, into how he spends his downtime, I guess, and when he's really got something to celebrate. But. Um, I wouldn't even say like in a weird way. Like that's what you want, isn't it? That's real life. That's what that's what people you do. Want that's real people, don't you? How, how many um, how many city fans have will not remember a lot of this weekend because they've 
like drank themselves stupid in Istanbul or around Manchester. Like, it's, that's what people do, that's how people celebrate. And Jack Grealish is a real person, and they all are, but Grealish is the one that you see. And it's, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great thing. And it, it gives you the idea that he is somebody, like, yeah, he's 100 million pound and he's got his Gucci deal, but he gives the image of somebody who just remembers what it was like to play football as a kid or to play on the street. He doesn't, he doesn't look like somebody who plays football for the money. He looks like somebody for whom fame and fortune is a byproduct of doing what they love rather than the other way around. That in a, in a team um, of world-class, almost um, mechanically drilled players, that's a beautiful thing. And, and that's, that's your connection, isn't it, as a, as a football fan? That's, that's how it's still possible to build a connection to something that actually if you step back and think about it, you are a long, long way away from, but players like that and people like that are your way into it and your insight into, like, Jesus, maybe, maybe that's what we'd all be like if we'd, if we'd just written history and just written our name to the history books that will stand literally for the rest of time. It's, it's incredible. Do you, do, you two feel, do you feel closer to the squad than you ever have before this season? Um, that's a good question. It's very easy to say at the moment, yes, because I, like, I love them all. They're all the best player in the world to me right now, if you ask me about any of them. Um, yeah, because I think they, they all come across, I think, as decent people. Um, like even just seeing the, um, the stuff from the parade with what's the guy called who does the meet and greet the funny is it Troy Troy Hawk Troy Hawk like just seeing how they react to him like looking baffled well again it was it was Grealish again who's like not you again well there's a very there's a very heavy edit on Grealish they cut away from something probably pretty nuclear I reckon (laughs) like even just seeing like our John Stones and Ake and De Bruyne greet him like again it's just a little insight that they are real people. It's in City's interest to give you more access to them, I think, because this is a time when people are going to want more access than they've ever wanted to City. And so the PR of this is just off the scale. City can, I mean, they can PR this forever, can't they? It's, yeah, and they will, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, United still do it. It's still the thing to talk about with United, isn't it? It's, um, they almost, like it, it almost suits United to be crap these days because they can still sell the treble. Like it's, they can sell the nostalgia of that in a way are that they couldn't. If they are were you still... doing PR for United these days? Uh, it, well, I don't think I could have done much more fun than they've done to themselves <laughs> if, if I had that gig. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like it, it's so, it suits City to, to push the players out there. And yeah, I suppose at a time when I, I feel further removed from the club, because like yep. ticket prices, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I do feel closer to the players in that um, sort of weird, sort of untangible way, yeah. So in, to finish for the first part, um, instead of going through individual players, I want to talk about the defence as a whole, Keith, because over the course of this season, City had, they started the season with two senior full whacks. They let one of them go halfway through. And John Stones, as Richard said before, and as Jack said before, has been phenomenal, changing his position every week. Nathan Ake has been excellent. He nearly left in the summer and, and has made the left-back position his. Mamala Kenji came in as the, as the fifth-choice centre-back and has played more games than, than any of the defence. Uh, Ruben Diaz came back and, and became a crucial part to, to City's winning run. 
what have you made, as a former defender yourself, what have you made of the way City have defended this season? I think it's, uh, dominating possession makes it a level lot easier to be a defender uh, in, the, in the modern day now. Um, I think if you have a look at the, the pace of Carl Walker, uh, and I think probably four or five years ago, flying down the wing, overlapping, uh, not as much good end product as what he would have uh, liked. And I think that's been slightly adjusted now, him playing slightly deeper, playing slightly narrower, sometimes playing as a, a third centre-back or even sometimes sitting in, uh, in midfield. Uh, that has helped him. City, they only really have to defend against counter-attacks. And I think they've got a little bit more reliable, uh, more reliable at doing that. But... Uh, ultimately being able to dominate possession makes your job a hell of a lot easier as a, as a defender there's, there's been a lot I think in certainly in the last few weeks especially the FA Cup final Champions League final of just like you can just trust them you can just trust them to, to see out the one goal lead yeah. and like, it, it feels like it's like I, I know City dominate possession they win most games but it feels like a while since City have had a, like, a bunch of defenders who were just good at getting stuck in the, the defenders are about making the right decisions at the right times um, again I was at the the, the end of the game on Saturday, I was very confident until the, probably about the last six or seven minutes when uh, De Bruyne has gone off and John Stones has gone off. And I'm thinking, this is the one time now in the period of the game you need a John Stones. He's got a physical presence. Yeah, he can win airily, win challenges in the box. And then he's gone off. And I'm thinking, we need you now. Yeah. Pep said a, Pep said a great thing not so long ago. He just said, I have defenders who can defend now. Yeah. And that was it. And he's absolutely nailed it in one sentence. Yeah. I think if you have a look at John Stones when he first came to the football club, was it five years ago, was it six years? Uh, it was with Pep, wasn't it? His yeah. first season, so yeah. I think six, the, seven years. Yeah. I think the one thing that, that people would say about him was yeah, he would give you a chance and he wasn't reliable. Yeah, I think the one thing now you say about John Stones as an individual, as a footballer, is reliable, consistent, dependable. And he'll create a chance as well. <laughs> week in, week out, and now the ability to go and play uh, as a number eight in midfield rather than an orthodox six holding midfield player. He's got the creativity and the ability uh, to go venturing further forward. You're thinking, bodes well. It's like the next page. Yeah. Richard, for, for you... I mean, I've, I've just run through a load of defenders there. I mean, there's one I haven't mentioned because he's barely played in the, in the running in, Aymeric Laporte, but he's come in when, when needed in like the FA Cup final, for instance. Have you... The point at which City let Cancelo go and it was like, OK, they're just going to play four centre-backs across the back. It's like, at any point, were you concerned by that? Or did it get to a point where you just trust that they know what they're doing? Um, I mean, classic fence in answer like both things are true like definitely Excellent. De de definitely I mean I know what you bring me on for Dave no one sits <laughs> on a fence better than I do I think like obviously at the, at the point that um, the news broke that Cancelo was going was just like a what is going on moment like it was it seemed so out of the blue and so ill-timed and just a very un-city thing to do like City prepare themselves very well don't they they're, they're obviously very good in the transfer market both at um, recruitment and at, at selling players and, and when to let players go and Cancelo just didn't seem like that was what was happening and it did seem to present a, a lot of problems um, and it's is it a coincidence or is it quite telling that things have largely improved since he left like it's obviously I think it's well known um, that 
that sort of broke up the the group of players that Pep was talking about when he was speaking about players not behaving professionally. I, I think that's reasonably on on the record. Um, and so I suppose it then makes sense that a group of players who are playing for a manager who is very adept at putting players in positions that you wouldn't always think about. So then, you know, four centre-backs across nominal sort of full-back positions. Um, like, why wouldn't it work? Because what Pep tries positionally generally works because, like, one of his great skills is having the eye for a player's skill set. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you do, like, by the end of the season, how, how are you going to, again, not trust in Ake or Akanji or, or Walker, who, again... There's a bigger conversation another time, but like for me, Walker's one of the stories of the season, like out and in again, and um, you know, a little bit of disgracing himself in the middle and coming back as a hero. Like he's been absolutely phenomenal. So how can you go to a City game and, and not trust the defence? It's um, it's remarkable. And like Jack said, I mean, what what more can you add to that than if Pep's analysis is I've got defenders who can defend then. Well, like that's that's the answer to why it's working, isn't it? I did find it funny that uh, Cancelo reinvented the left-back role and then uh, got shipped out. And we were all kind of like, OK, there's no senior left-back at the club because we're not including Sergio Gomez as a left-back. And then come the Champions League final, the discussion's over which centre-back is going to do better at left-back. And we're all like, well, Akanji deserves it. Well, Ake's played so well that it's just like, it, it, it's remarkable how that's gone. Um, now, as you know, we, uh, we have a charity bet on the podcast. Uh, this season, we've been donating to the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. They help the Trussell Trust collecting donations of food and money ahead of weekend home games. All of that goes to Manchester Central Food Bank to help people in this city who can't afford to eat. I want to start this bit now with the charity bet by giving them a shout out because they don't take any credit for giving up their weekends. Uh, and I know that they'll all hate that they've done this, but they're not here, so they can't stop me. Um, so uh, let's have a little bit of a round of applause, please, for Alex, Jill, John and Nick for all the work that they've done over the last few seasons. So that comes on to the charity bet for this season. Uh, over the course of the season, we've raised £1,090 from William Hill with our predictions on City Games. Uh, I know everyone who's been on a podcast this season is interested in the stats. Um, so, Richard, any, any wins for you, do you think, this season? Uh, I would imagine not. Nope, nope, didn't, didn't manage it. Uh, Jack, did you, uh, did you pull one out of the bag? Nope, shaking his head, uh, he didn't. Um, Keith, you had one, you had one show... Uh, unfortunately, didn't bring in a prediction either. We had, uh, I mean, if you want a job doing well, do it yourself, I say, because I came in with four wins this season, uh, which was the most of anyone. Adam sat in the front row, close behind me on three. Uh, Kieran Murray on two. Everyone else who got one, uh, got one. Um, the biggest win of the season, uh, that came from an opposition fan. Uh, that was Frankie Maguire, the Villa fan. Uh, correctly predicted City had beat Villa 3-1 at the Etihad. Um, he's the second opposition fan, that one. Matt Cooper uh, won for Wolves. Um, Ten, ten wins in the Premier League, three in the uh, Champions League. One was the FA Cup final, which was, I, I was particularly pleased with. Um, so congratulations to everyone who won on the charity bet this season. Uh, we're now going to take a very, very short break, in which time you can go and uh, get a drink from Dave because he's, uh, he's uh, got the bar open, so please go and, uh, go and get yourselves a drink. Uh, when we come back, we'll be looking ahead to next season. If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Welcome back to the Blue Moon Podcast Live. So part two is uh, looking ahead to the future. And Richard, I, um, I guess this is a difficult question to start with because... I've seen a lot of takes, and you kind of danced around it before, of City have almost kind of done everything you need them to now as a fan. So where do you go from here? Well, it feels like that now, doesn't it? But I sort of thought that in 2012 as well, after Aguero's goal, that, well, it's never going to be better than that. And in a, in a single moment, I still find it impossible to imagine that football will ever make, like, give me that euphoria... Yeah, that level of euphoria ever again as the Aguero goal did. But everything just sort of resets, doesn't it, and, and goes back to normal because come the first game of next season, the first misplaced pass that City make, I know that the guy who sits two rows over from me at the Etihad is going to be absolutely going nuts. Or the next time they play a back pass when he thinks he should go forward, there's going to be people losing their minds, aren't they? Because it's just what happens and we all reset and... I guess that's another part of the beauty of supporting a football team. Like it's, I, I suppose we won't spend every game thinking, well, this is fine, we won the treble. And there is, I think, a very distinct target next season is the four in a row. And, and that has to be a motivating factor because that's the next thing City can do that no one has done. And if they do that, then that is like... They'll be, they'll be heads bouncing down Deansgate, won't they? Yeah, I mean, it, but, but it will be... <coughs> Like, I suppose there's a point at the moment where winning three in a row or winning the treble, we can argue who's done them better. It doesn't actually matter. But they are things who ha- that have been done before. And so I suppose don't quite have the uniqueness that maybe the 100 points has. Like that's solely City's thing. Four in a row would be solely City's thing. And it'll be Pep's last chance to do it because he ain't hanging around for another four years, is he? You wouldn't think. Um, and it will be a very hard thing to put together again anyway. So that has to be the motivating factor. Um, and I, I guess as the season goes on, that'll become more and more of a, a touch point and something to be tense about and something for the club to start to focus the prospective documentaries on. And yeah, it's, it feels completed now, but it won't feel like that come the first bad VAR decision or the first bad pass or the first missed chances. It just resets and it all feels right again. Jack, you said earlier that it felt like the beginning. Um, what did it feel like the beginning of to you? Uh, just more nights like Saturday, um, being in, the, in that sort of environment, not annually, because no one can do it annually, but like more often than not, I think, the way it's going. Um, just because they got over the first one, and once you get over the first one, it's, it can quickly snowball, um, particularly if they keep 
the majority of the squad together for the next two or three years. We're going to come on to that. <laughs> yeah, I was dreading that too. <laughs> um, but it's yeah, it's like it's like when they won the won the FA Cup in 2011. It then sort of got the ball ball rolling, didn't it? Because it had been so long, uh, and it had so many sort of near misses in the years between the takeover and, and that happening, and people didn't think they were didn't think they were going to win something. I remember doing. Um, did a feature the other week about the 2011 final, uh, the semi-final, sorry. And um, one of the fans that I spoke to was saying, I didn't think we were going to go and beat United. And I actually genuinely thought if we lost against United, we're just not, it's not going to happen. And the owners would get bored and they'd, and they'd sell. So it's, well, obviously they got over that. And then once, once they did win something, the... 12 years think, yeah. after that is, you know, it's been incredible. Yeah. For, for you, Keith, as, a, as, as an ex-player of the club, what's it like seeing the club where it is and what it could achieve next season? Uh, again, I think it's, it's night and day from the club that I joined in, uh, in 92. Uh, and I think at the time, uh, I think I came for a two and a half million pound, which was uh, a British... Uh, record for a defender at the time and then five years later I left because in the, the chairman's opinion at the time I was earning too much money after we got relegated um, and I wasn't on big money relatively speaking <laughs> <laughs> so, so no but, but if you have a look now the um, I've been I've been to a few games now the it's totally different but there's a harmony and a, a realness about the football club still yeah. For, for next season, if you were a player in that squad for next season, how, how difficult do you think you'd find it to be able to go, we've just won three trophies, but we can't slack off? How, how, how easy is it to just reset to zero? I don't think it's easy, but I think there's a, there's a unity within the uh, the playing squad. I think you saw it after the FA Cup uh, when the, cele- the players were celebrating and you could hear them, or you, could, you can see them mouthing one more, one more. Now that determination and that, uh, that collective vision within the group is there. And again, I don't think anybody uh, will be allowed to slack off. I think if you have a look at the demands and the accountability that Pep, Pep puts on those players, he will not rest on, uh, rest on his laurels. And again, there will be new players coming in. There will be players leaving, which is, uh, is, is inherent in every football club every year. And it's about uh, embedding those players and bringing, putting them, getting them to understand the standards that are required. Yeah. On that point, Jack, there's an element sometimes of, in order to keep a squad fresh, you have to lose faces that you might not necessarily want to lose. Mm. And there are a couple of players, there's like Ilkay Gundogan, we still don't know what his future's going to hold. Bernardo Silva, we don't know what his future's going to hold. Even Riyad Mahrez, we don't know what his future's going to hold. How different could I this squad... I think with the money look? on offer to Riyad Mahrez, I think we've got a fair idea. A fair idea. <laughs> How different could this squad look next season? Uh, someone said to me a few weeks ago that they weren't expecting it to be a massive one. I think people were talking about it there being this sort of refreshing, for want of a better word, churn, and there'd be like four in, four out. I don't. I, have, I think they're hoping for less, and it just be small sort of thing. So obviously they want um, Gavardiol from Leipzig, who will be a direct for replacement for Laporte, who's probably. If they can get the money, the port will go. Um, Kovacic looks looks like seems likely. Seems like they're probably going to get that done. 
who he replaces will be very interesting because they do sort of cheeky and, and, and those sort of people see him as someone who is able to play as a six and an eight which then brings you know certain other people into the into the conversation and whether they leave but we talk about this every year in that there's always five or six names that's going they're going to go and it never happens there's never that massive sort of recycling of players a big refresh really I mean last year they obviously sold big characters last year but they wanted them to go whereas I think you know you look at Bernardo and Gundogan this year they don't. They obviously don't want them to go. Grealish certainly doesn't want Bernardo to go. No, no, no. It's quite. It was a nice moment. That. Yeah. It's almost as if he's got character. <laughs> um, the, yeah. I, look, we don't. I, I don't know what's going to happen with Gundogan and Silver at this moment in time because everyone's been very uh, tight-lipped over the last sort of six weeks because everyone's been focused on. The treble, Getting the job done. Yeah. yeah. So really, you would you would ordinarily have a better. I would ordinarily have a better idea of what's going on at this stage of a year, but it's everything's just been pushed back, and history suggests that one of Gundogan or Silva will stay, because that's just what that, you know. It's just that's what's just happened what over the years. Yeah. yeah. What's the average age of the squad now? That is a great question that I don't know the answer to, but it's quite young. How, how do you... Of course, Adam Carter knows that. I think the average age of the squad is, is, is 28 and a half, isn't it? Yeah, which, which is a, the average age of the starting lineup, 27 this yeah. season. I don't know the entire squad. I'm not that sad. Must do better. <laughs> so, in terms of that, Richard, um, you look at how important Ilkay Gundogan's been in the last few weeks. How how devastated would you be to, to see him go? But at the same time, you could you could almost understand that decision. He's a, like he's he's driven the team to to everything. Yeah, I mean, there's a. I suppose my concern with where he's at and obviously being out of contract and and having offers and that decision to make is how attractive it might feel to think now I've won the treble. Like, this is the high point, and this would be a really good way to sign off. Um, and I, I don't think you could blame him or begrudge him for that, but I i mean, he's so important, isn't he? And we, and we see it time and again at the end of the season, taken to an extreme this season, two FA Cup final goals, um, the the running, I mean... The, the like, goal at Everton. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that goal was extraordinary I mean people were talking about like never having seen a goal like it and and not just City fans but like that was like a national conversation of um of what a ridiculous goal it was and it's not a goal that you would necessarily associate with Gundogan you wouldn't be before the game if you've got your who's going to score a sort of weird hybrid overhead kick today you've probably not got Gundogan as your first name down for that and he, he just produces big moments and he's is like an embodiment of the cliche is the wrong word because it's like it's it's just completely true. But the, the cliche about the importance of having experience in the squad, 
Like, I feel like you can almost see his experience radiating out of him with, with every decision he makes on a football pitch. He's so composed. He makes the right decision time and time again. He's, he's unflustered by anything that happens or the pressure around him, or at least he seems that way. You know, you sort of presume he does feel the pressure because how could you not? Um, and so, yeah, I'd be, I'd be absolutely gutted to see him go, like really gutted. Um, but I sort of wouldn't blame him either. Like, he's... It's a high point to go out on, isn't it? And if he wants to go and play in Spain for a bit and add Barcelona to his, um, his list of truly elite clubs that he's played for, a step down from his current one, obviously, but um, it's not, a, it's not a, a bad name to add to your CV, is it? So I just wouldn't begrudge him. He might not ever get paid or registered, but he, he <laughs> could still say he'd been there for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't been to Barcelona, <laughs> that's, that's the difference. Uh, Keith, in the dressing room, what, what conversations will be being had between the players? Will, will, will players be talking to each other, saying, like, like Grealish was to Bernardo, like, don't go, you've got it great here. Don't, just don't, don't leave. Yeah, um, I think so. I think there's a, like I said, I touched on it earlier, I, said, I think there's a unity about that group. And on a personal note, I think keeping Gundogan is vitally important. Um, when you watch him play uh, as a, a purist of the game, so to speak, uh, I love the simplicity of, of his game. Um, when you, when um, he's not the most dynamic. You, know, you wouldn't say that he's going to he's going to win many races or anything like that. But he's always in the right place at the right time, makes the right decisions. Uh, and when you see them want they, they want to play out, everything goes through him. When they when they want to uh, uh, an attacking phase, he's always on the end of it, on the edge of the box. And you think about why are teams not picking him up? It's the first thing you think. Like, right, edge of the box, make sure good ones marked. But uh, his understanding of the game. I think Pep said, Pep quoted him as being one of the most intelligent players that, that he's coached, and I think excellent. Um, and again, so I, and again, I think you have a look at his personality. I think he, it shines through that he's a good character, uh, a good human being. And you, uh, in a football team, you can't have enough good human beings. Really nice fella. I was going to ask. Really, yeah. really nice fella. Yeah. Um, and I'd, uh, who do you think will be? Who would you pick as captain next year if he if he went? If he's gone, yeah. I mean, it does depend on the on the squad, but I would imagine it would be Diaz. I think Diaz is quite good at being the supplementary sort of cheerleader, <laughs> rather than <laughs> the main guy. No, I get it. I get it. So in that sense, I think Gundogan would, from a leadership perspective, big I think miss. he'd be a big miss. Yeah. Although I mean, we did say that about Fernandinho. <laughs> and the guy that replaced him has not been too bad so <laughs> that is true what about Bernardo though Jack um, because his on off transfer has been happening year after year after year now and the story is generally that he wants to go closer to home and whether that's whether that's to Spain or back to Portugal it, it, it's difficult to say but if the if the choice is Extend at City or move to PSG. If PSG, the only team that that have an offer that mm -hmm. City could possibly accept, is his decision difficult? Yeah, the, he wants. To, so he wants to finish his career at Benfica, and he's what is he now? Twenty-eight, average age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if he was to stay at City for another two years and then have three or four at Benfica, because he's desperate to play for Benfica, because he, he, obviously he's a massive fan, and it didn't go particularly well last time, he basically got sort of, the manager didn't fancy him and whatever, 
So he's got unfinished business there, so that's where he wants to be. Imagine being the man who didn't fancy Bernardo Silva yeah. for, the, for, for a job. And, he was called, and that manager was called Jesus as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it is a really, really tough decision for him. Um, but I think there is, a, I think there is a window of there is a slight opportunity for them to for it to carry on. It depends on because he's always been priced effectively priced out of a move, and the clubs that have wanted him, well, club i.e. Barcelona have not wanted to pay the money that City deem him you know value him at. But he's not got as long on his contract now, so I wonder whether a, a, a lower offer coming from a PSG uh, he's able to live in a different city different country it's hard but it's sort of similar to my answer before in that we do say we say this a lot about but particularly him I mean how many seasons have we had now where it's been like this year's that he's going to go he's going to go and then it gets to the end of August and he's still there apparently unhappy and then and puts in a skin. nine out of ten yeah. season, so it wouldn't. It only genuinely wouldn't surprise me if it was the same again. Yeah. But if th that does happen, then I think it's a new contract. Yeah. It would have to be a new contract. If you're not happy at a club, genuinely, how hard is it? How 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 hard is it to put in a nine out of ten, ten out of ten performance? Um, how, not being happy at a football club, then asking the. Uh, I think as soon as you cross the white line, the. Uh, does a switch just go? Are you, are you just in game mode? Yeah, but I think it's the it's through the week. And again, there has been people and players that have genuinely been unhappy, homesick, um, wrong city, wrong team, uh, fallouts with managers, fallouts with other other players, and everything like that. But ultimately, when you cross to the white line, it's it's about your accountability for your performance and all those. Uh, everything else goes out the window during that ninety ninety five minutes. And then the same problems are still there when you come off the pitch. Yeah, so I mean that says a lot about him then as a as a player to be able to be unhappy. I mean, if it's if it's just the, like the situation, like he's, he's Manchester's not the right place yeah, for I think, him. I think I read one of the quotes: "It uh, he doesn't like the weather." I mean, who I, bet he's loving, I bet he's loving it at the minute. Isn't he? <laughs> it just but you'd build your own microclimate for him, surely. Like <laughs> just get him a greenhouse or something. Yeah. I think the the, the major problem he has he, he had was during lockdown. And obviously footballers were able to do more than the, the majority of the general public. But, you know, he's living in a top floor apartment in the middle of the city. You go into training, you're coming back, you're staying in an apartment in a city that, where you don't know that many people outside of your colleagues. You're looking out the window and it's raining all the time and you can't go anywhere and you do like... That is, it's going to affect. It would affect anyone. Um, so then that's when he was really agitating. Back then, I I just don't I don't get the sense it's as I don't think it's, it's a, not it's as, a, it's, as strong yeah. as it was, but it's still there. Yeah, yeah. Richard, um, on a player that isn't leaving, uh, we saw in the last few games, uh, particularly in the Champions League final, how uh, Kevin De Bruyne went off injured. And Phil Foden came on in the centre in the centre of the of the pitch. How key could that be for City next season? How 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 much of an impact can Foden have moving inside? Oh, I mean, huge. It's all, I think almost immeasurable impact. The, the guy's one of the most talented footballers you're ever going to watch. I, I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Phil Foden's gift is 
extraordinary. It's been obvious since the first time he, he came onto the pitch for a first team game, not because of anything that he did that day was particularly special, but in an indefinable and unquantifiable way. He just looked at home in a, in a way that so few 16, was he 17 when he made his debut, I think? I think so, so. so few players coming on at that age into that quality of team could look at home or comfortable. Like you, you wouldn't blame somebody for freezing a little bit or doing a little bit, trying to do a little bit too much. And he's, he's never fallen into that trap. And um, I'm sure like no City fan here or, or listening to this like needs a, a, a breakdown of all Foden's qualities, but he's, he's just magnificent. And they lend themselves to progress it into a central role. I think he's been quite upfront that that is his preferred position. Um, I would class myself as one of the sort of least tactically minded football fans you could ever imagine and like it it stands out to me that I mean maybe, that, maybe that's a bad thing I don't know maybe that means he couldn't do it <laughs> but it, it stands out to me that he's made for the middle and I do think that we're probably at a point with De Bruyne where his game time is going to have to start to be managed um, and that's a really sad thing to say but like just logically, is going to have to. And the, like we spoke earlier um, about the, like the idea of transfers, freshening up the team. But it doesn't have to be transfers, does it? Even those system changes where, like you're, for so long, your star player, your most important player, arguably, if you start to move, move him out is the wrong phrase, but you know what I mean. If, if you start to lessen his game time, and I guess, in a sense, lessen his impact on the first team. And obviously, he's going to play a lot of games. But if you start to hand that responsibility to Foden instead, there's like a really natural transition that the team is already primed for that doesn't have to be reinventing the wheel, but still gives that freshen up and that, that moving and shaking, as Pep called it in 2021 before the Champions League final. Um, that, to me, is like a glaringly obvious thing to happen this season. And I think... This has probably been the toughest year of Foden's career. And there was that really telling quote from Guardiola around February when he said, after the Newcastle game when Foden was brilliant, and it was the first time for a while that he'd put in, a, after his injury, and he'd put in a really good performance. And Pep said, it's been the toughest year of his career. It's normal for that to happen. And he has a learning point, along the lines of he has a learning point that in these situations, you don't look around and blame your teammates and you don't blame your coach. You look at yourself and having been through that and seeing the performance that he comes in and puts on in the Champions League at a point where he wasn't expected to be called upon in maybe the highest pressure game City have ever played, all of that goes along with that. Like, he's ready for it. There's no, there's nobody in the world could ever doubt his skill for it. And I think this has got to be his time. I think that's so exciting. It's, like, so exciting for City that he's just there. Like, he's just there to be called upon and ready to do it. And... Like, add a, add a few more goals. And I say that was your third top scorer this season. Like, it's easy to forget how many goals he scored because it was a difficult year. But, like, what can be better than maybe Phil Foden becoming that man in the middle? That's amazing. Yeah. And, Keith, when you look at his relationship with Erling Haaland, for instance, I mean, the, the start of the season, there was, there was talk about Foden not passing it enough to Haaland. And then suddenly that went out the window when <laughs> Haaland scored ridiculous numbers of goals from Foden passes. Um, the future's only good between those, with those relationships, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think, but I think arguably, just touching or reiterating that, uh, he needs more starts. He needs more game time now, Phil. Uh, is he going to play uh, instead of Jack? Probably not. Is he going to play on the right side uh, instead of Silver? Potentially. 
will uh, De Bruyne accept that he's not going to have the the amount of starts that he could warrant? Uh, I think that could be a talking point. Well, that that drives competition between two great two great players, though, doesn't it? So yeah, I mean, <laughs> very much, very much so. Uh, again, but that might be something that. Uh, that, that Kevin himself looks at and thinks, right? Well, if I'm not going to be the star player playing week in, week out, do I need to? Uh, do I need to move um, to allow the, the, the evolution of uh, Phil Foden to, to be to become the player that everybody thinks he's going to be? I wasn't expecting tonight to be. Is Kevin De Bruyne going to leave? But now suddenly I'm very worried, Jack. Please, please tell me everything's all right. Well, thankfully, I've not added anything to that particular <laughs> conversation. Um, he, he struggled with sort of injuries. This year. I mean, he said after uh, after the game on Saturday, he said that his hamstring's been a nightmare for the last two months. He's been playing through quite serious pain. I think he just needs a break. Yeah. And he'll be back fit and firing in in August. Um, I mean, the one th- the one thing that will be sort of fascinating early next season will be how ready they actually are. Because oh, it's a bit doom and gloom this, but. The season's finished so late. They're going on tour on July the 20th. That's not far off. <laughs> and they won't, be tra- they won't really be training before that, I wouldn't have thought. Because he, he always wants to give them six weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's... The, it might be... For the first couple of weeks next season, it might be walking football. Really. <laughs> Which we've seen quite a lot. Because it's one of the sort of geniuses of Pep is that... Um, well, let me give. Well, I'll, I'll Vincent be... Company's got Burnley in for pre-season already, whereas City don't do City don't do anything in July really, and they have their pre-season in August, which is why they can go and go on those like monstrous runs in the middle of the season or end of the season because they just time it just right. But I think so. History would suggest that everything will be all right next season. <laughs> yeah, and a quadruples on the way. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, um, in terms of uh, forward options, uh, as Jack mentioned before, Riyad Mahrez has had quite a sizable offer to, to leave. Um, it, it kind of feels like the right time for him to go. I don't know if you agree with that or not, um, but it, it, to me, feels like the right time for him to move on. I'm just wondering, like, how, how busy could City's summer be? Because... You look at, like we talked before about the, the three midfielders, they haven't, they've got one senior fullback, so they probably need to do some business at the back. And, you know, it's likely like Emmerich Laporte's leaving. Yeah, um, just on the, on the Mara's point, I probably mostly agree that it feels like the right time. Not because of what he has to offer the team, but on the basis that, again, that idea that like, players do have to move on, you have to freshen the squad up. And he does seem like the sort of obvious guy for that to be, in, in maybe in a way that Jesus and Sterling felt like that last summer, not because they had nothing to offer. But I suppose you could see a point where the team and the evolution of the team was starting to leave them behind a little bit, and that's fine. It doesn't take away from their quality, so on and so forth. Um, but like it's, it, it's just sort of fine that that happens and has to happen. So yeah, I don't, um, I don't doubt that Mara still has goals in him, still has some big performances in him, but if he goes, like, that's okay. Um, on the fullback point, yep, there's one remaining, so presumably you're thinking, that one's got to go, yeah, and then go, we can go, just go, have centre-backs all the way Yeah, across. no fullbacks. Yeah, I mean, presumably there's going to be um, 
that's a situation that has to be addressed. But then we've sort of long thought that his left back situation has to be addressed, and it <laughs> it always is. But like <laughs> in-house promotions, like Zinchenko, Delph, Cancelo becoming the like as you said earlier, redefining the left back. Um, it it sort of feels like that's at a, a a pretty big point where it does need to be a player recruited to that position and. Obviously, on um, the right back, Walker's not getting any younger. Um, nobody is, but he's probably approaching like maybe passing his peak. He's still a very good player, but just in in, in age terms. I'll let you put that to him. I, I mean, I'm likely to get the chance, <laughs> thankfully. Um, yeah, just think in terms of like when, like if he were to sign a new contract, it's probably his last like his last one. That that kind of thing. Um, they probably need more backup for him, more challenge for him. I guess the busyness depends on the outgoings, though, doesn't it? Like, there's, there's, they need to freshen the squad up, but does that have to be a complete, again, reinvention? Or can it be one or two signings? Because City have improved having made... I mean, when they signed Mahrez, it was their only signing that summer, and they, I think, were better the next season. That was 2018-2019. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah... I, I suppose it depends on the outgoings, and that's a really hard thing to predict because 2019, we had the summer where after we'd won the domestic treble and suddenly there was all the talk of everybody wanting to go. Like Obviously, Laporte wanted out that summer, was well-known, and he's still here. Seems that he'll probably go this summer, but you just, you just never know, do you? How many players have we had whose City have wanted to ship out and they've stayed and been fundamentally important players? You can... Well, Zinchenko every summer for about five years. Yeah. Well, John, I mean, John Stones is the best example. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have anything else to add, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I thought you were going to carry on. I mean, it's this. okay. I, I spoke for about 10 minutes and I haven't answered the question either, so... That's <laughs> fine. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take some questions from the audience now to, uh, to finish. So if you've got a question, sit your hand in the air. Uh, I'll get the mic to you. Uh, let's start over here. Hi, long-term listener, fourth-time speaker. Uh, my question is for Richard. Um... Tony Pulis is Tony Pulis and five minutes is five minutes, but what injury time felt longer, FA Cup or Champions League? Because they both went on for two hours. Uh, uh, that's a really good question. Um, circumstantially, Champions League. And I think, for can me... I, can I just make a point on the Champions League stoppage time? Because I, I watched the highlights again recently for about the 150th time. And um, I was chatting to Keith about this earlier. There were two minutes of stoppage time left when Edison ran 16 yards to catch the ball from across. And I was like, fuck me. <laughs> that, the moment, like, if, if anybody gets a touch on that before he does, they've scored. Yeah. And like, the bollocks on that man to come and do that. <laughs> Credit to him. Um, yeah. I think, like, for me, the, the fact that like I was at Wembley for the FA Cup final. I wasn't in Istanbul for the Champions League final, unfortunately. Um, maybe it felt longer for watching on TV, being able to see the counter in a way that you can't at Wembley. Um, I was going to say there was more on the line in the Champions League final, but I suppose I, I didn't think that at the time of the FA Cup final because before the game I'd have been one of the ones who'd have said the FA Cup was more important to me. So... But yeah, like the cumulative effect of like the treble on the line and 
I suppose Inter were creating chances. Obviously, United had the scramble chance and John Stones heading the crossbar and all that stuff. But Inter were having like actual chances um, where it felt like if they play another couple of minutes, one of these is probably going to drop in. So yeah, that one was the most uh, the most torturous, I think. There's a lot of talk about the kind of science of Man City, the inverted fullbacks, the um, uh, reinvention of the centre back, the false nine. I don't think enough has talked about the beauty of Man City, the art of Man City. I was at a game, I don't know which one, when Foden pulled the ball out of the air with the outside of his foot, and everybody just gasped. I just wonder, the panel, if you were to describe the beauty of Man City to somebody who doesn't know us, what does that represent? I think they make the game look so simple, um, but the I can tell you as uh, as a coach as a manager, uh, it's not easy to go and get the get to get a team playing how you envisage the game being played, because unfortunately players do fail. Uh, when you've got a host of star players, it makes it a lot easier. But then there's different elements that come into it. Then as a coach as a manager, you, you need to test good players and I think uh, there's so many problems now that Pep will have with every team that comes with not so much a threat of uh, them trying to beat and, and score goals against City it's about the tactically how are they going to try and stop City and it's, it's like the next page going forward Pep's on that page already breaking teams down sucking teams out of low presses and, and everything like and you're thinking like excellent and then the discipline managing egos the, but then, like I say, I think the, the freedom of expression that Pep still has within a team framework that the, and the work rate that the players have to do before they go and entertain. Jack, can I just, before you answer, can I just say, in terms of uh, yourself and the, the press pack that follow City, it's, I, think it, I think there is a very clear difference in the way City are spoken about by people who watch them week on week and people who see maybe just the big games. And you obviously you see them most weeks. In terms of, of kind of the beauty of City, yeah. it's it kind of goes underappreciated, I think. A little bit because it's because uh, it's because it's not a surprise. So the beauty of City in seventeen eighteen was actually talked about pretty much every week, but because it's now expected of the manager and his team, people people find different different angles and different things to talk about. But, so, but there, is all, there is always a place to sort of just sit back and admire. You look at the guy, I mean, you could, make, you could make beautiful paintings out of the sort of passing lines for a goal, like the trigon trigonometry that's involved in it. And like, you could hang one of those on your wall and it would look amazing. And that's, for me, that is the beauty of it. And it's just like Keith said about the simplicity. It is. It looks simple, but actually, what they're coached and what they do, you have to have every single player knowing exactly what they need to do to make that art, and that's that is the beauty of it. If Jack, if if you did have a beautiful painting made out of city tactics, <laughs> where would you hang it? <laughs> Come on now, the bathroom. <laughs> you want to go for? The Louvre? No, definitely not the Louvre. I don't think I've done that justice. <laughs> you really haven't. You really haven't. Yeah, uh, my, my question is a, a two-part question. If you could only pick one trophy next year for City to win, 
would it be the, the, the league or the Champions League? And if it's the league, which it is for me all day long, where's the challenge? So Arsenal obviously would play decent football, fell away. Newcastle, uh, slightly unknown with the European stuff to deal with. United, are they really it? You know, as long as they've got Maguire and people like that. Uh, will Spurs suddenly become unspursy? Where, where's the challenge? I think, I think the challenge next season is going to be Liverpool. Because I, I, I think they'll come back really strong. Um, McAllister was a really good, really good signing. I don't really understand why none of the Champions League clubs have gone for McAllister if he was going for relatively mm. sort of cheap money. Um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see whether Arsenal can sort of maintain that kind of charge again. Uh, and the jury's out on that. And it might be a year, year too soon for Newcastle. And from a United perspective, they probably need three or four signings. And I don't think, unless they get taken over fairly quickly, I don't think they're going to have the finance to be able to sort of do that. Um, and as Richard said before, the, the chance to win four in a row, I don't... I'm presuming every fan in this room would hold the league title over over anything else next year. Yeah, I mean, I um, come from a position of always preferring the league, and it's dead nice to say that now, being able to back it up and say, yeah, I preferred the league over the Champions League, because it's always just sounded like a really bitter thing to say to people. Like, oh, I didn't want to win the Champions League anyway. Um, the league is what proves your quality, in my opinion. The Champions League, you can win it, being fifth in your country, you can win it by not qualifying as champions. I think, like, objectively, to win it as a double with your national championship is what legitimises your claim at being the best team in Europe. But had Lukaku scored his chance, chances, but the, the header towards the end of that game, City go to extra time and maybe lose, are they a worse team than Inter? Are they, are they any less the best team in Europe? Um, not in my opinion the league, you cannot win it without being the best team in the league. It, it's impossible because everybody plays each other over the season. You play in the same conditions um, against the same opponents and like everybody is judged by the same criteria in a way that you're not in any other competition. So I would always choose the league. The four in a row potential is um, absolutely adds to that. Um, and the, the challenge, I guess, like I, I end up sort of making a circular point back to my first answer tonight. The first challenge is in City's own heads. Are they ready to go again? Do they want it enough again? I think they will. I think it's, it's hard to see Pep letting that mentality drop. Um, the players have spoken about, and, and Fabregas was talking about it in the punditry after the game, like the thing that he always remembered from meeting Pep for the first time when he, when he was signing for Barca was... I don't care what anybody's done before. You, you reset and you're on a clean slate. And that's an amazing thing. Was it Diaz who said a, a couple of months ago, like Pep's best quality is, it doesn't matter what you've done. Every training session, everything else is out the window. Like it's, it's just constant motivation and obsession and, and need to win. But they are also only human and they have just done probably the most amazing thing they're ever gonna do as a football team. So, I don't think you could blame them if subconsciously there was a little drop, but that's the challenge. I think that the first challenge is in their own heads. Um, and then beyond that, I would agree with Jack that 
like Liverpool had a bad season, but they had pockets of good form. Obviously, they beat City at Anfield. They didn't suddenly turn into a completely incapable team. Klopp hasn't suddenly turned into a completely incapable manager. He has... Um, he has improved them once before after a really after a significant drop in form. Um, so yeah, I, I would expect them to, to come back pretty strong, and I think are probably the biggest challenger. We're expecting a classic City Liverpool season, Keith. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think everybody was a little bit surprised the, by Liverpool's poor form this season and not being able to, to shape themselves out of that poor run. Uh, and going back to the original question, I think the the, the fourth Premier League title will definitely be the, the the starting point of the success next season. Now, my mother's put her hand up, and I dread to think what this question <laughs> could be. But I'm going to trust, against my better instincts, I'm going to trust that uh, she's got something that isn't going to embarrass me. No, it's not. Um, I just like to know: Do the panel think that anybody will win the Ballon d'Or this year? So it feels instinctively like the player who would have the biggest shot at that would be Haaland, as the headline grabber. Fifty-two? Did he finish on? Fifty-two. Um, I would personally go for John Stones because you know he's John Stones. Um, but yeah, I I think Haaland probably has. Uh, a big shot at that. The complicating factor is Messi winning the World Cup, I think, because it's Messi and it's almost like awards are sometimes given out as like lifetime achievement awards. And, you know, I mean, he's, when did Messi last win it? It's got to be a couple of years mm-hmm. since he, he picked up his he's, 150th Ballon d'Or. He's won so, it before, though. Yeah. Um, I don't know, there could be a, a bit of like Giggs winning the PFA Player of the Award or like Al Pacino winning his first Oscar for Scent of a Woman. Like, there's better reasons to have won it, but it'd be like a sort of fair award for the achievement. I would, um, I would go Haaland. And, and yeah, I, I think there's a, a good chance because of the trophies always legitimise it. Any, any other nominations? Yeah, I, well, there'd be, there'd be different nominations, but the only player that really would have a chance of beating Messi is, is Haaland, yeah. Because it's just kind of a vanity award, isn't it? It's not like... Because I'd, I'd agree with Richard, but John Stones would be, you know... He wouldn't be my pick over Haaland, but he'd be definitely up there. But he wouldn't have a... He wouldn't stand a, stand a chance. Because, I mean, the, that, that Modric thing was... A few years ago was massive, wasn't it? Because it wasn't one of Ronaldo or Messi. Um, and that's why it was so significant, but... Yeah, if Haaland doesn't win it this year, he'll win it at some point because it is uh, it is an award for the numbers, and he gets quite high numbers. He, he does fairly well, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Um, could Keith could um, um, could, pers- Gundogan, could Gundogan have a chance? Yeah, no, Gundogan can have a chance, but I think personally, I think it will go to uh, Haaland. Um, like saying, I think, but, but I think Messi will get a lifetime achievement award for for what he's done uh, for football in in general. Yeah, right. Well, that brings uh, this year's Blue Moon Podcast live to a close, and that is our final episode of the season as well. Don't worry, though, we'll be back in a few weeks for the start of the 2023-24 season, and it will be the 15th season of the Blue Moon Podcast. So even if I wanted to, it's been going on too long now for me to give it up. Um, thank you very much to my guests this evening, to Richard Burns.
to Jack Gaunt. And last but not least, thanks to Keith Cole. Now, before we sign off for the season, I've got some more thank yous to dish out as well. So, starting off with everybody who's given up their time to be on one of the podcasts this season. So, it's a big list, so brace yourselves. Nice deep breath. Thank you to Duncan Alexander, Paul Atherton, Simon Bakowski, Paul Bias, Alan Bates, Sean Blinkhorn, Alex Brotherton, Dan Burke, Joe Butterfield, KC, Adam Carter, Falco Kramers, Mark Critchley, James Ducker, Dan Edwards, Jordan Elgott, Dom Farrell, Ali Fogg, Gaz, Gary James, Adam Keyworth, Craig King, still going, Alex Gonshalves, Rachel Hurdson, Paul Hurst, Chris Higginbottom, Howard Hawking, Dale Johnson, Sam Lee, Macca, John McKenzie, Stephen McInerney, Mike Miney, Adam Monk, Kieran Murray, John Murray, Nader Manua, Helen Powell, Archie Ryan Tutt, Sam Roscoe, Jonathan Smith, Niall Taylor, Christoph Tarur, Bob Toole, Will Unwin, Tim Vickery, Sarah Winterburn, Liam Wright and Laura Wolfe. This evening also wouldn't have been possible without the help of Dan Maudsley, who's lent us the equipment, Ellis Hodgkiss in the corner over there, who has made sure that it sounded well for everybody at home, and also to Dave Wolinski, who's let us use his cafe once again for this season. I also would like to say a big thanks to Andy Hoyle. He's the man who goes, it's a quiz, in that really cheesy voice whenever I ask him to. I'd like to say a big thank you to my partner, Sam Atkins, who puts up with this shit continuously, especially as launching a new podcast this year with Sam Lee. Every night really is podcast night in our house. Uh, Big thanks to mum and dad for not forcing me to give this all up and get a proper job. But most of all, thank you to you for listening. Without you, there really is no show. Enjoy the summer, everyone. Bask in the treble. And we'll see you next season when City will hopefully do it all again. is the blue moon podcast please give the show a rating and a review where you can and don't forget you can listen without the ads by signing up to our patreon and join us again next time for another episode amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals from courses to help you attain or retain certification to individualized coaching services to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen management concepts optimizes your professional development online in person individually or groups it's training that's measurably better learn more at managementconcepts.com that's managementconcepts.com